Well, do keep your Bibles open there at that passage we just read together. There are times in life when we really personally and even corporately as the church of Jesus Christ need to take the long view. That's true not only spiritually for the church and for us as individuals, but it's often true, isn't it, in history. After a series of defeats, Great Britain during the Second World War had encountered Winston Churchill came to the House of Parliament one day to tell the House of Commons that, quote, we have a new experience. We have victory, a remarkable and definite victory. He was referring, in fact, to the first victory of the Second World War, at least for the Allies. Well, that was before there were Allies, I think. Generals Alexander and Montgomery had turned back uh, the forces of the Axis powers at El Alamein in what Churchill called later the Battle of Egypt. And as he's talking to the members of Parliament, he describes the fact that the soldiers had effectively destroyed Rommel's army as a fighting force. It was a decisive, it was a major victory. But in that speech, he says this. Now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And there's a sense in which this passage, and indeed the rest of Isaiah, is going to be reminding us that right now this is not the end. It may not even be the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning, that God is at work in the world. Now, there is an end coming, and that is one of the perspectives that is brought before us in this passage. Because Isaiah, as a prophet, is looking not just at his time, nor is he merely analyzing the movements of his time and making guesses, he has the very unique position as a prophet of God. One of, the, one of the ways in which the Bible distinguishes between a prophet and the rest of God's people is this. In Jeremiah 23, verse 18, the prophet is one who stands in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear His Word. Now, where is this counsel of the Lord? Except wherever the Lord is enthroned, surrounded by His angelic host. And where does God sit enthroned by His angelic host, if not in heaven itself? And so, when God's prophets were told, stand in the counsel of the Lord, we're being told that in their ministry… They are in the very presence of God, seeing what God has plotted and planned, hearing the Word of God that God speaks to them. Remember the experience of Isaiah? He gives his testimony back in chapter 6. One day he went to the temple in Jerusalem, but he entered the door and found himself in another temple altogether. He found himself in the heavenly temple, for there there was a throne, and God in His glory filled that temple. 
And there are the seraphim there. He is exalted. He is high. He is lifted up. He is there in his own home, if you will. He is in heaven. And there's Isaiah the prophet in the presence of God in heaven. And he knows that he's not simply in the earthly temple. He is in the heavenly temple. And he's hearing the seraphim singing the praises of God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. And there in the presence of God, he hears the Word of God. In the Old Testament, Moses did this. Do you remember he went up the mountain and he took others with them, but they stopped halfway up, and Moses goes right up the mountain into the cloud of God's presence to the burning, flaming splendor that was hidden inside the cloud. And there he spoke with God. He saw the heavenly angels. He heard the voice of God. He was shown things to come. That is the experience of John the apostle in the book of Revelation. In the New Testament, that experience of the glory and the cloud in the Old Testament is often described as being in the Spirit. And there is John in the Spirit. And in the Spirit, where does he find himself? He finds himself immediately in Revelation chapter 1 in the heavenly temple. He finds himself confronted by the risen and reigning Lord Jesus in all his glory. He sees in chapter 4 the throne of God. He hears and sees the attendants around the throne, those heavenly beings that serve God day and night. He even sees the redeemed, those who are already gone before us in the presence of God. And there, there he sees the work of God in the world and hears the voice of God speaking to him. It is the characteristic of the prophet that they are in the counsel of God and that they receive in the very presence of God these insights into heavenly realities. They hear conversations recorded by the Spirit, given to them by the Spirit, of the members within the Trinity. They hear these translated for them, as it were, being accommodated to His to a human being's knowledge and perception. He hears them as conversations and as speeches made by the various members of the Godhead. We sometimes see that in Isaiah in chapter 52, for example. We, we, we saw the Lord introducing Isaiah, who's in the heavenly council, introducing Isaiah to the servant. He says to the prophet, behold or look and see my servant. Here is the Messiah. Isaiah is transported to a time further on from his time, the time of Jesus' resurrection, the time of Jesus' enthronement. He is taken to that time, and the Father says to him, here he is, my servant will be high and exalted. And then he turns, as it were, to speak to his servant. The Lord speaks, addresses the Lord Jesus. God addresses his Son. As many as were astonished at you. And then he turns back to the prophet and says, His appearance was so marred as he reflects on what the Son has gone through, his, that it was beyond human semblance. Now you find the same thing here in chapter 59. You find the Lord God referring to himself As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. And then he talks to the servant, 
my spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth, and so on. We're introduced then to this heavenly speech from the throne of God. So we remind ourselves, as we must always, that these prophets receive the message when they're in the Spirit, when they're in the cloud of glory, when they're in the presence of God. They see the heavenly throne. They hear heavenly voices. Now, it's against that background then that we come to this passage today. You look back at verse 14, which summarizes what we've been looking at over these numbers of weeks. It's been rather depressing. I'm you know, I'm glad you're back this week because it can get very depressing, depressing hearing this catalog of sin and evil. I mean, we've enough of it just looking around the election cycle here without having to read it in the Bible as well. But there it is in the Bible, this catalog of sin and evil that there is in the world. We, we, we have particularly noticed that the prophet is a covenant attorney ask, responsible to act on God's behalf in prosecuting the case of Yahweh, the Lord, against Israel, the church. You don't like to think of prophets like that, but that's what he does. So he exposes the worldly church that is imitating the society and culture all around it. He talks about the formal dead church that that hasn't got the vitality of spiritual life in it. We, We saw that happen as well. And here in verses 14, 15, there is a kind of summary of that. Here's what we see. Here is the reality of the church in the world. It is imperfect. The church in the world, you and I as believers in the world, we are still sinners. We are imperfect. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're conscious that we are not yet what we shall be as the children of God. We have not yet, we're not yet perfect. We're not yet living in sin-free, wrinkle-free, death-free bodies. We've not yet attained to the resurrection of the dead. We are, no long, we are not yet living in a renewed world, transformed by the power of God. We live in a broken world, a messy world. We live with a messy church, a broken church. That's the reality. Truth has stumbled at the public squares. Yes, even among the people of God, truth is relativized. Even among the people of God, truth sometimes doesn't have the primary place, or the mind does not have the primary place to receive the truth of God. Truth is relativized, put to one side. Truth is lacking. We, we, we think we can get by with knowing minimal, that really when we come to church, what we want is a feeling or an experience or something else, a buzz or, or whatever. I don't know if you've had a buzz and asked you for the coffee beforehand, but that's the only kind of buzz we're offering at church today. Truth is lacking. But here's the key thing. Here is the only hope for the world. Look at the big middle of verse 15. The Lord saw it. He sees. The Lord knows, you see. This is the hope, the great hope of the world, is that God sees and God cares. He sees what's going on. He cares about it. And as we we shall see, He will do something about it. He sees that we cannot defeat sin in our own lives by ourselves. He sees that we as a church cannot keep ourselves pure and clean and, and lively and serving as we should. He sees He sees the kind of mess the world is in. He sees the state that the world is in. 
and he intervenes. Notice what he goes on to say. He saw that there was no man, that is, there was no human being. There was no figure, no celebrity, no powerful individual. No one who could rectify the situation. No one who could reconcile the irreconcilable distance that exists between God and humans. There was no one to bring peace and harmony to the world. No one ultimately to resolve the problem of history. No one. There was no man. No one to be the mediator. No one to intercede with God. No one to stand in the breach between man and God. No one to act on behalf of God's people. But it's not all negative. Look at it. Look what he says. So, what has he done about this? So, his own arm. God gets personally involved. If I stick my arm out and put my hand on something, I am personally involved. I am acting. I am acting. Here is God in action. This phrase, the arm, is used back in chapter 53 of the Messiah himself. The Messiah is God's personal, powerful action in the world. He comes actively to be involved in the world. His arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness sustained him or upheld him. Here he comes to bring salvation to his people. He acts to do it himself. They can't do it. He does it for them. And that action requires the backup of righteousness. But we're unrighteous. We can't back him up. We can't be there to support him in this work of salvation. So what is he to do? He is to do it with his own righteousness as the backup. His own righteousness as the basis for what he is doing. Here is God doing it all. His righteousness, his action, his involvement for our salvation. So what does he do? He comes as a warrior. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and garments. Those would be military garments. Those would be the military elements that he wear of vengeance, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Those are, those are elements, righteousness and salvation and vengeance and zeal in the Bible are characteristics of God. They're qualities of God Himself. They're all aspects of His Godhood, His deity. He comes with those aspects of His deity to act for His people, putting all the weight of who He is into the business of making war against our enemies. But who are our enemies? Oh, well, we very often want to suggest that there are forces in the world. Well, it's maybe, it's maybe the liberals. Maybe they're our enemies. Maybe it's society that is our enemy. Maybe it's ISIS that's the enemy. But, and for Israel, ancient Israel, there were all those other tribes around, the Syrians and the Babylonians and all of those. But those are not the enemies that Isaiah has in mind. Not by this point in the book. He has taught us to see that the real enemies are spiritual. The real enemies are powerful. You'll notice, by the way, that those, ver those very words, we'll come back to them again, are used in Ephesians chapter 6. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is talking about the enemies of the church and the people of God, and he talks about spiritual powers. 
He says that behind commercial and economic and legal and political influences in the world, there are these powers of darkness. There are principalities and powers, authorities involved in high places. That there are in these forces, all of them good and all of them necessary for human life and existence. Nonetheless, there are powers of evil which can focus and concentrate themselves in any or all of these areas and become monsters in their own right. That's what the book of Revelation teaches. The monstrous Babylon, the great, represents the commercial and social and cultural powers of the world. And there is, no, there is no force or influence or personality in the world that cannot at any moment in history become an expression, a public expression of the powers of darkness. And God is making war against those monsters, the monster of sin, the monster of evil in the world. He comes to wage war on the real enemy, sin within and the aggregated powers of sin, represented by those demonic powers, those angelic powers. He comes to make war on them, and his war will be successful. According to their deeds, he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, and this will be global. This will be world. He is pointing us, you see, to the end. This is what's going to happen. In the end, this is going to happen. When he comes as the warrior at the end of the age. Remember Jesus said he came in peace. He came riding the donkey on that first Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. He was declaring this time I come in peace. But in this latter part of Isaiah, Isaiah is looking beyond Jesus' time and beyond our time to the end of time. When the same Lord, the same Messiah comes as a warrior to finally defeat and destroy all the enemies of God on that final day. Now, interestingly, we have a part to play in the meantime. Just look at that language again. I said that the language of the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation comes from Ephesians 6. And in Ephesians 6, the people of God are to put on the whole armor of God. Paul puts it like this, be strong in the Lord. Whose righteousness is this? Is it my righteousness that I am to wear as a breastplate that will keep me safe from the fiery darts of the devil? No, it is this righteousness that the Lord wears, His righteousness. A lot of the debates and discussions and questions about what Paul means in Ephesians are answered if you go to where he's actually explained it, where God has explained it in the Bible and from which he's taken the very words. Here it is the Lord's zeal. It is the Lord's righteousness. It is the Lord's salvation. We put them on. They clothe us. They protect us. They encourage us. They keep us looking forward to that fulfillment of complete and final salvation that lies ahead of us. We are to be strong in the Lord and in that way resist the powers of darkness. He comes as a warrior at the end. In the meantime, we fight our little battles. 
In the meantime, we feel the fiery darts of the devil attacking us, and there are those days that are described in Ephesians as evil days, prolonged periods where the church of God is under assault, where the people of God feel they're being bombarded on an ongoing basis and feeling perhaps this is the permanent way it's going to be. There are those periods in the life of the church. Oh, there are periods of great blessing and advance. In the 1740s, there was a period of great awakening where the power of the Spirit landed in places like Northern Ireland and Scotland and the south of England and the New England. I mean, the Spirit of God just fell simultaneously in all of these places, and hundreds of thousands of people were converted. That happens. There are those periods like today when the church, as it were, is in decline and the work of God is being assaulted on every side and where people's faith is running low, people's love is growing cold, people's hope is nearly extinguished. And in such times, we need to remember to put on the armor of God and to fight the local battles of our own faith and our own in our own way, in our own church, and in our own culture, and in the opportunities we have, fighting our little battles, knowing that the final battle will be won. The final battle will be won. There was a, a wise crack which Spurgeon, uh, not Spurgeon, Churchill quotes in that speech that I quoted at the very beginning, who said that it is the peculiar it is a peculiar reality about Britain that it has discovered that the only battle that's crucial is the last battle that you win. And the last battle will be won by King Jesus. But he's coming not just as a warrior, he's coming as a redeemer because he's coming to redeem his people. Again, this is future. A redeemer will come to Zion to redeem His people. He is the one who has paid the price to set His people free. Isaiah 53 focused on the price. The price was, He'll be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. The punishment due to us will be meted out on Him. And there's a sense in which we already are redeemed. So we come today and we can sing, I am redeemed. I have a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. But our final redemption is still to come. Because He is not just about the business of saving your soul, He's about the business of saving your body and transforming this universe. And so you find Paul, for example, referring to this in Romans chapter 8, when he says that the All of creation is waiting for the day. It's on tiptoe, looking forward. Creation, the animal creation, the material creation, on tiptoe, expectant, looking for the day when the children of God, the sons of God, will be revealed. And on that day with resurrection bodies, you didn't get it first time round, so I'll repeat myself. Sin-free sickness-free, wrinkle-free, death-free bodies. Rise to a new heavens and a new earth, which Isaiah will go on to talk about, in which everything has been renovated. This planet renovated and ready for us to enjoy.
for all eternity. He comes as a redeemer. He comes not to bear sin. He did that the first time he came. Next time he comes, he comes to bring salvation to all who are waiting for him. And you want to know who it's coming to? Look at the end of verse 20. It is to those who turn from transgression. He's already talked earlier in the chapter about those who mourn over sin. Do you want to know whether you're a true believer today? A true believer is someone who knows they need a Savior. It's somebody who knows that they're a sinner. That's why we ask you these questions when you become a member of the church. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? And if you know yourself to be a sinner and you're trusting in the Savior, He is coming a second time to bring complete and final salvation for you. Well, then thirdly and lastly, He comes as a mediator. In verse 21, the Lord, Yahweh, talks about the covenant. This word covenant's come up again and again in in Isaiah, as it does throughout the Bible. It's God's underwritten word, His promise, His promise to Adam and Eve, His promise to Abraham, His promise to David. Back in chapter 42, He talks about that promise to David, his promise to David is explained that this, it is the servant, the Messiah, Jesus, who is the one in whom this covenant is fulfilled. According to Isaiah 53, when the servant dies and rises again, he will have offspring. There'll be people born, born again. There'll be those who believe in him, and they will have children. And so there's a reference in verse 21 to to those offspring. That takes you right back to Isaiah 53. The people who will be radically justified, it says. He will justify them. He'll put them right with God. Those are the people. Those people and their children will be secured from this time forth and forevermore. Here is the Lord Jesus, our mediator, and he, he addresses him, my spirit that is upon you. We, we heard about this servant being full of the spirit in all his perfection. Here is the servant being addressed. He comes with the word of God. His words are fixed and secured, Isaiah said earlier. Here he talks about those fixed and secure words that you have in your mouth. And those words, those promised words, will remain in the mouths and hearts of your believing people, the Father is saying to the Son. They will remain in their hearts, and they will be passed on from generation to generation to generation. Those words of salvation will be passed on to those coming after them. In the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, it teaches us to say this, I believe that the Son of God through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. There's a wonderful promise here. It's a promise that God will keep His people. 
that the mediator will act for them, and he secures in himself, and by his words of promise, he secures our place for eternity. So I ask you this morning, I ask you first of all whether as a believer you're in the battle, or whether you've capitulated, are you putting on the the armor of God, Are are you seeking to fight the battle with sin in your own life, are you seeking to fight the battle for truth? If truth is misplaced, if truth is disregarded in the world, are, are we people here determined that these minds of ours were given, first of all, that we might understand and comprehend the truth of God? That, in fact, we come to church, first of all, to know God, and that the knowledge of God involves theology, which is the knowledge of God. We, must, we need to know to whom we pray and of whom we sing and whom we worship. There is this intellectual capacity. We, we can't ignore that because how, how do you love what you do not know? I mean, if we have a relationship with someone, we want to get to know them. We want to know what is on their mind and in what they're thinking. We need to know how they work, what, how they tick. We need to know God that way. If we're going to have a relationship with Him, And that relationship will be deeper, emotionally deeper, if we know Him better. And we will feel more secure by knowing Him. Perhaps some of your insecurities stem from the fact that your knowledge of God is inadequate. We need to know Him more, not not less. You're pursuing the feeling of, perhaps you're pursuing the feeling of emotional stability and security without realizing that that stability and security comes from knowing Him, which involves knowing about Him. There isn't a disconnect between what I feel and what I know. What I feel is deepened by what I know of God. And maybe you need to know Him better. Maybe you need to know Him because you don't know Him. Because if what we've said this morning is right, and God is coming as a warrior at the end of history to bring history to its final conclusion, and you don't know Him, then you're not one of those who He comes to redeem on that day. Rather, you are one of those who He will reject on that day. So I urge you, Know Him. Know the Lord. Come to know Him. And rest upon His Son, the Lord Jesus. And here we are in the midst of this time. God's work has begun. It's not finished yet. It's not the end. We don't even know if this is the beginning of the end. But we do know that the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Word of God And the existence of the church of God in the world signifies that it is the end of the beginning and that the end is secure because Christ is risen from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have called into existence in the world a people for yourself, the church. Why we don't like to think of ourselves as uh, uh, an aggregate or 
a large group of people. We want to think of ourselves as individuals. Nonetheless, you've tied us together in this bundle of life called the church. And we stand or fall with Zion, the city of God. We pray that you would strengthen us today to live for your glory. We pray you would help us, Lord, in the battle with uh, injustice and lack of truth. We pray you would help us, Lord, as we struggled on to, to live for you and to put our hope in you, to put our hope in you, to make that the focus, that coming redemption. You're, you're not content merely to save our souls so that when we die, we go to heaven. No, your intention is to raise our dead bodies and make them resurrection bodies like Jesus' glorious body in which to live for ever. Help us to focus our hope in that, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.